Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. This is Winnie Caesar, Global Head of Strategy for Credit Sites. And today I am joined by Mary Pollock, our head of real estate. She is based in our London office, which has been ground zero for a lot of the new concerns and issues within the real estate sector. It's a sector that comes up really frequently in client conversations. So I'm excited to have her speaking to us today about all things real estate. Mary, thank you so much for joining. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start with a little bit of a warm-up question because I feel like real estate has definitely been dragged through the mud in the financial press lately. Have you seen any clickbaity, you know, buzzfeedy type real estate headlines lately that you are especially focused on? Because we are in the middle of a property cycle, there's definitely a tendency, I think, for headlines to go both ways in that everything is going wrong and everything is going to be okay. So definitely have our fair share to pick through. It's not so much a headline, but a recent anecdote that was in a Bloomberg article, which I think was both telling, but also that sort of clickbaity, like you can't read into it too much, was that, um, so there's a an office in Canary Wharf that has gone into receivership for the avoidance of doubt. It is not owned by the Canary Wharf Group. It was owned by a Chinese property company, but the bank is now trying to sell the property. And some of the bids have essentially been less than the rent that is guaranteed on existing tenants. So they're essentially saying like this property is going to cost so much to redevelop on the other side of these tenants leaving. We can't guarantee new people will take the space that like we won't even pay you for more than that rent, which is, you know, obviously a very juicy anecdote for some of the secular pressure regarding uh, the shift to hybrid work and how that's impacted office portfolios. Wow. That seems just absolutely egregious. <laughs> what what an interesting anecdote. And it is also interesting how London has been a laggard compared to the rest of Europe in a lot of ways with return to office and hybrid work. It's well ahead of the US. You've put together a great kind of overview and slide pack of some of these trends on the office side because you did recently initiate on Canary Wharf, which is a really interesting kind of story right now. But I was just really kind of struck by how much London has lagged Europe more broadly. Do you have a reason for that? Like what, what what's going on there? I think L- London public transport is good. People should take the Elizabeth line into Canary Wharf. It's, it is really interesting. That question is so interesting. Um, and I think people often see that work from home trend through their lens. So the city they live in and the industry they live in will be sort of what they think is happening everywhere, but it definitely differs by city and then also by industry subsector. And many of the major cities on the continent have seen 
more return to work, more frequent days in. So days in the office is not the same as it was pre-pandemic, but the remote working culture is not the same as it is in London. And anecdotally, I would say most often the reasons are pointed to length of commute. So to get for people in London to commute into the city and then to the office takes longer. And then also the size of dwelling. So in cities like Paris, for example, like people tend to live in smaller apartments versus say living in a suburb of London where you have more space, so you may have an office. Those are two anecdotes. And then also by subsector, financial services tends to be in more like five days. And there are other subsectors like media or tech where you have more remote work. So that can be a dynamic as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that actually segs nicely into the next topic that I was going to bring up, which was, you know, one of the bigger challenges across real estate globally, really, but also in Europe is how kind of varied the sector is. You have a lot of different types of properties from, you know, multifamily residential to office, and then also a lot of different geographic exposure. You know, I think that most people, when they're thinking about commercial real estate and the, the problems plaguing it, are thinking about the office side of things. Uh, but, you know, residential, retail, logistics, others, you know, where are you spending most of your time nowadays when it comes to property type and why? It is heterogeneous as a class. I feel like I say that all the time. You know, in my coverage universe, I have a shopping center outside Paris, an office block in Berlin and an apartment building in Stockholm. <laughs> there are things that are the same about them and things that are very different. So I think this is true for all credit side analysts, but in some sense, you're, you're always thinking about your universe from a portfolio perspective. So the biggest subsector we estimate in Euro IG is residential. So I do spend a lot of time on a residential, even though it is more defensive. Interestingly, in this crisis, because its cap rates were so low, reflecting the defensiveness of the asset class, it has also been more impacted more impacted by the change in rates, impact on financing costs, and how that feeds through to valuations and ICRs. So I've spent a lot of time in residential, especially in Germany and Sweden, which once again has to do with sort of that mix of issuers in the index. And then I do also look at retail logistics and offices, you know, where we started in credit, people tend to focus on what's going wrong. Offices are the subsector where have the biggest questions about fundamental long-term issues with demand for the properties themselves, which is very different than, okay, this cycle, say simply put, is rates-driven. But if you have strong demand, like it's clearly the case for residential and logistics, then you grow on the other side. You have more existential questions around offices, so spending more time on offices. And then from a geographical perspective, I have to mention the Nordics. And this is less about the assets themselves, actually, and more about the nature of those balance sheets. So the Nordic issuers in Europe tended to run with more floating rate debt exposure and more front-end loaded maturity profiles. So they have also been more severely severely impacted by the change in rates. It's more quickly fed through to issues for those names. And they also were just running more aggressive balance sheets in terms of hybrid issuance, higher LTVs, secured debt. So the Nordics have also taken a lot of time. Wow, a, a lot a lot to walk through there. Can you just kind of give a high level overview of kind of the the composition of, you know, where the debt lies for euro real estate? I mean, we have the euro IG real estate bonds, you know, it's a pretty material part of the sector, but is there also a lot of kind of the the floating rate bank exposure in the the euro real estate se sector? Like how do you kind of think about maturity profiles and, you know, what what piper needs to be paid in the near term. 
many of the names I cover, most have some secured bank debt in place, which can also be a non-recourse mortgage on a specific property or a pool of properties. There is a huge variety though, in terms of some I cover actually have none. Jacina, for example, has none. French office company. The Nordic names tend to have the most, which also dovetails with what you see if you're looking at the Nordic banks. They have the biggest CRE books of the banks in Europe. So it depends once again on geography and sort of historical relationships. The share of bank debt in capital structures has been increasing because the bond market has been shut off to so many of these issuers. So I am very focused on obviously issuers of bonds and then those that have bank debt becomes part of the analysis. For example, Canary Wharf has a ton of bank debt. So that was an important part of analyzing that credit. Uh, I have to be careful though to not speculate on all of the real estate assets that have bank debt across Europe, because that is a much bigger remit than my issuer, my coverage universe, which is issuers of bonds. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, Simon Adamson, our Eurobank's lead, has done some really interesting work around, you know, real estate exposure on bank balance sheets. So we can also follow up with him as well to have kind of that comprehensive view of where the, the real estate debt actually lies. So from that like fundamental perspective, you know, you talked about the valuation impact of cap rate, but also, you know, valuations only matter so much when we have a really need, big need for liquidity or kind of refinancing. But there's also a number of kind of nearer term fundamental metrics that we should be keeping an eye on that that might be just a better early indicator of where things are going to go. So, you know, what are the metrics that you are telling investors to really pay attention to in 2024 for your real estate? I am very focused on um, ICR ratios for determining the health of balance sheets through this property cycle. So most of the balance sheets in Europe are levered on an LTV basis. So that LTV metric is very important. Uh, The extent to which valuations decline is important, but it is non-cash. And I think this cycle in particular is about the balance sheet that was put in place in 2021. So the LTV that was decided when your cost of debt was in some cases, you know, below 1%, incredibly low cost. And what healthy ICR looked like with that um, balance sheet in place, how does that look over multiple years if you're refinancing at 5%, 6%, 5%, 6%, or even 4%. Like, And when I model that out over years, it can be, you know, I'm not seeing improvement for a number of these companies in their ICR ratios until 2028. So that is a lot of years of erosion on that metric. It also has implications for investment, for CapEx. These cash flows are highly levered to interest cost. So that is the I think the sort of longer term view with a specific metric that you need to bear in mind, especially with as it relates to the issues with this property cycle and that tie to, to financing costs. And also a number of the companies are also very open with how focused they are on the ICR as well. So with a focus on ICR, I would imagine that similarly access to capital in in the bond market and that the cost of that capital is is going to be a pretty significant consideration how how are you feeling about that right now are we seeing real estate come back into the primary market to address either near term maturities or just kind of raise liquidity how do you feel about that access to capital that's a, it it's a, it's, a not, it's quite a neat a dovetail or quite a neat connection there because there's the market being open and then there's the companies willing to pay a certain price because 
that means like, they can, like that is sustainable for them long-term, which is a question internally some of them need to have. So the bond market was largely closed to the sector in 2023. In more recent months, we have seen more issuance, which is definitely encouraging for demand overall. We, in my opinion, need to see a functioning primary for European real estate in the second half of this year because our bond maturity pillar in 2025 is of a much different magnitude than 23 and 24. So we are headed in the right direction, but you know, as we see time and time again, sentiment can change. The outlook for rates is not in these companies' control. We all have to assign some probability to rates being higher for longer. Now, when we're thinking about portfolios this year, and that is absolutely the case for the European real estate companies. So I am constructive on their ability to, to tap the bond market, but it's definitely something we're closely watching. And then, you know, something I think I know that's made investors nervous is when the companies have said, okay, they know they could tap the market, but say if it was a 6% coupon, they don't want that in their capital structure. That obviously makes investors really nervous because that might not be a, a choice that they have the privilege of making. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like such a kind of, if management teams say, oh, well, I don't want the 6% coupon, but they need to refinance debt, they need liquidity, what, you know, whatever it is, do they have other options? Like where else would one go? Yeah. So in general, you know, the companies have raised cash through asset disposals, in some cases equity, and then they've gone to the bank market where the cost of financing was much cheaper last year. That is less so the case. And there are companies that could handle paying higher coupons, of course, for a short period of time. But I think, you know, we saw this most pronounced in the hybrid market where also they truly have the option not to call and just have a, a coupon step up. And they're like, of course, we're going to do that versus pay a 7 or 8% coupon, which is what, you know, utility and telco issuers of hybrids, if, if they have to pay it, that's where the cycle is. They recognize it. The pricing will be different in years to come. Whereas, you know, when push came to shove for the real estate companies, obviously they made a different decision. Yeah. Such an interesting dynamic of, you know, still being able to go to banks for kind of real estate lending for a little bit cheaper capital, but we'll see where that dynamic goes. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned, and, um, the, oh, go ahead. I just want to say the banks obviously also get security. Yeah, <laughs> like the that's banks, a helpful thing. It's, it's, it's very different than the mm-hmm. senior unsecured bond or like a subordinated hybrid. Like, And the banks get to negotiate what the LTV is with regard to that specific loan, the ICR. Like it's, it's for them, it's a different in, it's a different case as a lender. Yes. Different investment case. Absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned earlier the valuation concerns, especially for residential, given where cap rates were and where things are going or have gone. We haven't seen a lot in terms of actual transactions, right? It seems like the the bid ask that valuation gap is still pretty wide. Is that true? Do you think there are deals on the horizon? Is that valuation gap starting to narrow? Where are we going in terms of valuations? The transaction market is definitely a focus going into this year. So for anyone who's less familiar, the the property the property valuation is often just a, a DCF model done by a valuer like a CBRE or a JLL, which plugs in assumptions for discount rates, rental income growth, and a exit cap rate. So the transaction market is important because it gives you the comparison transactions. You can say, oh, you know, if the neighbor if the building next to you is selling for X, then my building is probably worth Y. Because we've had so little properties changing hand, you get into this conversation about, okay, what is what are these properties actually worth? And you know, they're worth what a company someone what someone would pay for them tomorrow. 
but these companies don't need to sell. So you can see how we get in this loop, these looping conversations, and you can hear them happening in real time on earnings calls sometimes. So the transaction market though, yes, we definitely expect volumes to improve. The valuers are all forecasting volumes to improve in 24 versus 2023. Where we have heard there are the most signs of life thus far is the logistics subsector. Logistics also has seen some of the greatest expansions in cap rates in those property yields. So they essentially took the pain, repriced more severely, and now you are seeing liquidity return. And you also have uh, a clear long-term fundamental picture, unlike offices. Over the course of the year, we expect liquidity to come back first in prime properties. So well-located, modernized, more attractive investments. And then slowly, slowly to sort of make your way down to really those B offices is where we think you will eventually see liquidity return. Then we will finally have insight into fair value for some of those portfolios. And our expectation for that, for the transaction market to play out that way is underpinned by what we've seen in previous property cycles. So after the GFC, and also what we're hearing from the valuers about the gap in spread between buyers and sellers expectations still being the greatest for offices. You know, that's where there's still these big question marks. And for those big question marks, you know, I struggle with this a little bit with the thinking around higher for longer. And I wonder, like, what's more important? Is it the how high or the how how long in terms of that kind of consideration? In my opinion, it's probably obviously a combination of both. But how long is the one that would make me more concerned? Because how high, you know, as we've seen, even how the market's expectations for rates and rates themselves have evolved over the last 18 months, it evolves. I think that's the important thing. It will peak and then it will come back down. The for longer part is when, you know, you have to really, okay, structurally think about a balance sheet that may just, just need equity to be sustainable. It just needs equity and there's nothing else that doesn't mean, you know, it just erodes, 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 or you risk breaching covenants in some cases. The maintenance covenants on the EMTNs for the companies that I cover that have maintenance covenants in EMTNs, those tend to be ICR covenants as a to help explain why that may come up in a conversation about IG debt at all. Well, and, and I, I agree with you, I think for the market bro- more broadly, the how high it seems like most people kind of understand or have an inkling of like, okay, this is probably rate where rates shake out. It seems like there's a better balance in terms of the inflation risk, the economy's surprising to the upside, and what central banks are doing than we've seen, you know, for much of 22 and 2023. And so then, you know, how long are we in this economic kind of momentum? Like, does Europe really kind of start to dig itself out? We had a little bit of a positive surprise on GDP for Q4. We've had a little bit of upward pressure on the Eurozone inflation data, but, you know, nothing overly concerning as of yet. The labor market's still tight. So kind of saying that there's going to be a step function of, you know, even more aggressive growth that probably is not necessarily my base case. And I don't think the market's base case. Mm -hmm. But it might be that this kind of level sticks around with us for longer than people anticipated, because the reality is there was so much cash injected into the system. And it takes a long time for that to get drawn down, which means that there's probably going to be kind of a case to be made for you know, yields kind of around current levels for an extended period. But is that period 12 more months, 24 months, five years? Like that the range of outcomes there is, is a little bit more nerve wracking. Yeah. And, you know, for Europe in particular, obviously running up 
2022, we had such low rates. I mean, with the ECB buying corporate bonds, like that market was distorted in a way that I think you do open the door. Okay, so how long does that take to work itself out of the system? Because there's where rates are going forward, but then should those bonds ever have been issued at the spreads they were issued at as a sort of, you know, big picture question then uh, is what happens to the real estate sector one victim of that environment? Yeah, it is fascinating because we really thought that the ECB's QT program last year was going to be much more impactful on valuations to the, to the negative. And instead, the Euro IG market fared pretty well last year. And in fact, Euro IG real estate was a maybe surprise top performer. You know, there was good spread and yield pickup for the sector. And that helped, I think, investors get a little bit more comfortable around some of the challenges um, and concerns around liquidity, asset valuations. Do you think that the sector can repeat its stellar performance in 2024? Or was that a function of just everybody was underweight real estate because they were scared? And thus, you know, when everyone is kind of underexposed, that's when you get that squeeze. We are constructive on the outlook for for performance in Euro IG real estate in 2024. And some of that driver is the same in that it is still really wide, just like it was going into 2023. It's offering quite a lot of spread pickup for the fundamental risks. And in my opinion, what's different about this year versus last year is we are some of the way through this cycle. We are not, we've learned a lot over the last 12 to 18 months. Valuations have come down. Companies have raised equity. So in my opinion, now I can, I can start to see to the other side. So if I can start to see to the other side, and by that, I mean, you know, where valuations trough, then I definitely want to have exposure in the right names. We're not recommend recommending you swing for the fences because you know, there are the secular pressure on offices. Like I mentioned, there are still some overlevered balance sheets. There is the uncertainty around rates, but some of the triple Bs, um, and I would even argue A and above rated real estate credits are offering you spread compensation for sector risks. But, you know, I think these companies survived the cycle with their balance sheets and their agency ratings intact. So I definitely would not want to be out of it. And even last year, you know, we, we were never saying don't have exposure because it was so wide. But going into this year, I would be comfortable being overweight with this focus on, on name selection uh, within the broader universe. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that that kind of theme of you really got to focus on the names, not just within real estate, but across the board, because I, th- I think you still do want to be picking up spread and yield in this market. You know, We haven't been saying go totally defensive in your portfolio strategy, but the range of outcomes in some of these more stressed or storied parts of the market is still going to be pretty wide. And so I guess my my kind of final question is real estate hybrids. There's there's a good chunk of real estate hybrids. If we're not swinging for the fences, are we saying, you know, maybe not so much uh, looking at real estate hybrids or are there some opportunities there? We have been very cautious on the hybrid asset class for European real estate. And that is in part a nature of the European real estate issuers that issued hybrids. They tend to be the companies with higher LTVs, with more secure debt, and with governance issues. It is the SBB, the CPI, uh, the Heimstad, and Bostad. So that, obviously, with what is a deeply subordinated security that doesn't have to be called, where the coupon doesn't have to be paid, these companies often have to choose between bad options. It's not that they don't want to call it like that. That's not their first choice. But if their other option, you know, if they're also thinking about preserving cash for senior unsecured bond maturities, you know, that's the higher priority. If coupon deferral is something that's on the table, it's because they so desperately need that cash flow. And 
the hybrid investors, like that's that's the nature of the beast. That said, I do think it was such a surprise to the market when around town didn't call um, at the end of 22. And I do think in the second half of last year, when like coupon deferrals became part of the conversation, there was some freaking out and then a struggling to price that risk. Like how do you price that probability? Because the corporate hybrids, it is it is uncharted territory versus say like the AT1 market, or at least on the non-call side, it still functions with securities that aren't called. And I think what the rally you've seen in recent months is the market starting to wrap its head around, okay, these aren't going away. In our view, and I think the market's view, in almost all cases, the coupon will continue to be paid. Obviously, SBB is no longer paying its coupon, and we expect that Heimstad and AB to also make that decision this year, but we don't expect that from any of the other issuers we follow. You know, I'm definitely, on when I speak specific clients, depending on their risk tolerance and their their mandate. I definitely talk about the hybrids with an openness to taking exposure, but always with like a lot of caveats for just, you know, knowing what you're getting into. Also, because we've heard repeatedly when you want to get out, you might not be able to get out of it. I think that that is a great place to leave this. Mary, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the European real estate market and the Euro IG real estate index. It is always a pleasure to talk to you about the topic because I learn a lot and I hope that our listeners have as well. If anyone has a question for Mary or for me, you can always find us on creditsites.com using that ask an analyst function. Mary, good luck on real estate in 2024. I know that you will probably stay very busy. (laughs) Thanks, Winnie. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates. Thank you.